Slain. The story of the master never wanted for narrators. Frederick Douglass. Chapter 1. And I could only have seen her there on the stone bridge, a dancer wreathed in ghostly blue, because that was the way they would have taken her back when I was young, back when the Virginia earth was still red as brick and red with life. And though there were other bridges spanning the River Goose, they would have bound her and brought her across this one, because this was the bridge that fed into the turnpike, that twisted its way through the green hills and down the valley before bending in one direction, and that direction was south. I had always avoided that bridge, for it was stained with the remembrance of the mothers, uncles, and cousins gone Natchez way. But knowing now the awesome power of memory, how it can open a blue door from one world to another, how it can move us from mountains to meadows, from green... woods to fields caked in snow, knowing now that memory can fold the land like cloth, and knowing, too, how I had pushed my memory of her into the down there of my mind, how I forgot, but did not forget, I know now that this story, this conduction, had to begin there, on that fantastic bridge between the land of the living and the land of the lost. And she was patting Juba on the bridge, an earthen jar on her head, a great mist rising from the river below, nipping at her bare heels, which pounded the cobblestones, causing her necklace of shells to shake. The earthen jar did not move. It seemed almost a part of her, so that no matter her high knees, no matter her dips and bends, her splaying arms, the jar stayed fixed on her head like a crown. And seeing this incredible feat, I knew that the woman patting Juba wreathed in ghostly blue was my mother. No one else saw her, not Maynard, who was then in the back of the new Millennium chaise, not the fancy girl who held him wrapped with her wiles, and most strange, not the horse. Though I had been told that horses had a nose for things that stray out from other worlds and stumble into ours. No, only I saw her from the driver's seat of the chaise, and she was just as they'd described her, just as they'd said she'd been in the olden days when she would leap into a circle of all my people. Aunt Emma, young P, Honus, and Uncle John, and they would clap, pound their chests, and slap their knees, urging her on in double time, and she would stomp the dirt floor hard as if crushing a crawling thing under her heel, and bend at the hips, and bow, then twist, and wind her bent knees in union with her hands, the earthen jar still on her head. My mother was the best dancer at Lockless. That is what they told me, and I remembered this because she'd gifted me with none of it. But more, I remembered because it was dancing that brought her to the attention of my father, and thus had brought me to be. And more than that, I remembered because I remembered everything. Everything, it seemed, except her. It was autumn now, the season when the races came south. That afternoon, Maynard had scored on a long-shot thoroughbred and thought this might, at last, in the esteem of Virginia quality he sought. But when he made the circuit around the great town square, leaning back, way back in the chaise and grinning large, the men of society turned their backs to him and puffed on their cigars. There were no salutes. He was what he would always be. Maynard the goof, Maynard the lame, Maynard the fool, the rotten apple who'd fallen many miles from the tree. He fumed, 
and had me drive to the old house at the edge of our town, Starfall, where he purchased himself a night with a fancy, and had the bright notion to bring her back to the big house at Lockless, and most fatefully, in a sudden bout of shame, insisted on leaving the back way out of town, down Dumb Silk Road, until it connected to the old turnpike which led us back to the bank of the River Goose. A cold, steady rain fell as I drove, the water dripping down from the brim of my hat, puddling on my trousers. I could hear Maynard in the back with all his games putting his carnal boasts upon the fancy. I was pushing the horse as hard as I could because all I wanted was to be home and free of Maynard's voice, though I could never in, in this life be free of him. Maynard, who held my chain. Maynard, my brother, who was made my master. And I was trying all I could to not hear, searching for distraction. Memories of corn shucking or young games of blind man's bluff. We were listening to a preview Tanahasi Coates book, The Water Dancer. In the Play Store online, on sale, the audiobook, about 14 hours and 14 minutes. shine. We illuminate the whole show. Jay-Z. Introduction. Regarding good Negro government. In 1895, two decades after his state moved from the egalitarian innovations of Reconstruction to an oppressive redemption, South Carolina Congressman Thomas Miller appealed to the state's constitutional convention. We were eight years in power. We had built schoolhouses, established charitable institutions, built and maintained the penitentiary system, provided for the education of the deaf and dumb, rebuilt the ferries. In short, we had reconstructed the state and placed it upon the road to prosperity. By the 1890s, Reconstruction had been painted as a fundamentally corrupt era of Negro rule. It was said that South Carolina stood under threat of being Africanized and dragged into barbarism and iniquity. Miller hoped that by highlighting black achievement in governance and marshalling a credible defense of black morality, he might convince the doubtlessly fair-minded people of South Carolina to preserve the citizenship rights of African Americans. His plea went unheeded. The 1895 Constitution added both literacy tests and property requirements as qualifications for enfranchisement. When those measures proved insufficient to enforcing white supremacy, black citizens were shot, tortured, beaten, and maimed. Assessing Miller's rebuttal and the 1895 convention, W.E.B. Du Bois made a sobering observation. From Du Bois's perspective, 
1895 Constitutional Convention was not an exercise in moral reform or an effort to purge the state of corruption. This was simply cover for the convention's true aim, the restoration of a despotic white supremacy. The problem was not that South Carolina's Reconstruction-era government had been consumed by unprecedented graft. Indeed, it was the exact opposite. The very successes Miller highlighted, the actual record of Reconstruction in South Carolina, undermined white supremacy. To redeem white supremacy, that record was twisted, mocked, and caricatured into something that better resembled the prejudices of white South Carolina. If there was one thing that South Carolina feared more than bad Negro government, wrote Du Bois, it was good Negro government. The fear had precedent. Toward the end of the Civil War, having witnessed the effectiveness of the Union's colored troops, a flailing Confederacy began considering an attempt to recruit blacks into its army. But in the 19th century, the idea of the soldier was heavily entwined with the notion of masculinity and citizenship. How could an army constituted to defend slavery, with all of its assumptions about black inferiority, turn around and declare that blacks were worthy of being invited into Confederate ranks? As it happened, they could not. The day you make a soldier of them is the beginning of the end of our revolution, observed Georgia politician Howell Cobb. And if slaves seem good soldiers, then our whole theory of slavery is wrong. There could be no win for white supremacy here. If blacks proved to be the cowards that the whole theory of slavery painted them as, the battle would literally be lost. But much worse, should they fight effectively and prove themselves capable of good Negro government, then the larger war could never be won. The central thread of this book is eight articles written during the eight years of the first black presidency a period of good Negro government. Obama was elected amid widespread panic and, in his eight years, emerged as a caretaker and measured architect. He established the framework of a national health care system from a conservative model. He prevented an economic collapse and neglected to prosecute those largely responsible for that collapse. He ended state-sanctioned torture, but continued the generational war in the Middle East, his family, the charming and beautiful wife, the lovely daughters, the dog, seemed pulled from the Brooks Brothers catalog. He was not a revolutionary. He steered clear of major scandal, corruption, and bribery. Tanahasi Coates, The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and An Unlikely Road to Manhood. Preview of the audiobook. Enjoy. Chapter 1 
there lived a little boy who was misled. When they caught us down on Charles Street, they were all that I'd heard. They didn't wave banners, flash amulets, or secret signs. Still, I could feel their awful name advancing out of the lore. They were remarkable. They sported the Stetsons of Hollis, but with no gold. They were shadow and rangy, like they could three-piece you, jab, uppercut, jab, from a block away. They had no eyes. They shrieked and jeered, urged themselves on, danced wildly, chanted rock and roll is here to stay. When Murphy Holmes closed in on us, the moon ducked behind its black cloak, and Fells Point dilettantes shuffled in boots. It was their numbers that tipped me off. No one else rolled this deep. We were surrounded by six to eight, but up and down the street, packs of them took up different corners. I was spaced out as usual, lost in the caves of chaos and the magic of Optimus Prime's vanishing trailer. It took time for me to get clear. Big Bill made them a block away, grew tense, but I didn't understand. Even after they touched my older brother with a right cross so awkward, I thought it was a greeting. I didn't catch on till his arms were pumping the wind. Bill was out. Murphy Holmes turned to me. In those days, Baltimore was factional, segmented into crews who took their names from their local civic associations. Walbrook Junction ran everything until they met North and Pulaski, who, craven and honorless, would punk you right in front your girl. Above them all, Murphy Holmes waved the scepter. The scale of their banditry made them mythical. Wherever they walked, Old Town, Shake and Bake, the harbor, they busted knees and melted faces. Across the land, the name rang out. Murphy Holmes beat niggas with gas nozzles. Murphy Holmes split backs and poured in salt. Murphy Holmes moved with one eye, flew out on bat wings, performed dark rites atop Druid Hill. I tried to follow Bill, but they cut me off. A goblin stepped out from the pack. Fuck you going, bitch. And stunned me with a straight right. About that time, my converse turned to cleats and I bolted, leaving dents and divots in the concrete. The streetlights flickered, waved as I broke ankles, blew by. And when the bandits reached to check me, I left only imagination and air. I doubled back to Lexington Market. There was no sign of Bill. I reached for a payphone. Dad, we got banked. Okay, son. Find an adult. Stand next to an adult. I'm in front of Lexington Market. I lost Bill. Son, I'm on the way. I had crossed a border. This was more than Dad's black leather belt. I knew how that would end. But word to Tucker's Cobalts, this thing filing out across the way, lost boys with a stake in only each other, stretching down the block in packs, berserking everywhere was awful and random. I stood near a man about dad's age waiting at a bus stop, 
like age could shield me. He looked over at me unfazed, and then back across the streets at the growing fray of frenzied youth. We'd come out that night in search of the wrestlers, who were our latest sensation. They elevated bar fights to a martial art, would rush the ring, all juiced on jeers and applause, white music blaring, Van Halen hair waving in the wind, and raised their chins until their egos were eye level with God. Moves were invented, named, patented, and feared. Heaven help Bob Backlund in the camel clutch. And we loved that, too. The stew of language that gave a beatdown style and grace. That made an eye gouge a ritual. Tanahasi Coats We accept violence against African Americans as normal. Coats and Hari Srinivasan preview of the audiobook. Tony Morrison, someone who knows a little something about literature, Just says this is required reading. Uh, I want to start with one of the quotes in your book. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. What does that mean? Well, it's a statement of history. I mean, uh, the African African American presence in this country begins roughly, you know, about the time that, you know, this country's deep history begins, 1619. Uh, after that, we had 250 years of enslavement. Uh, after that, we had 100 years of Jim Crow. Jim Crow was enforced through violence, uh, through destruction of black bodies, through lynching, through uh, mass murder, through terrorism. Uh, up until this very day, you know, where we are in this era right now, uh, where we have police forces, you know, who are in our, you know, communities, and we, you know, it seems like every week get a shooting or somebody beat death or somebody, you know, as we have with Sandra Bland, somebody, you know, who uh, dies under mysterious circumstances, and we accept this as a normal way of doing business. Uh, we think that it is okay to have the...
summary analysis and review of Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, written by Start Publishing Notes, narrated by Michael Gilbo. Part 1. Summary and Review. Summary. Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, is an autobiographical account of being black in America and, perhaps more importantly, is also a letter to his son, Samori. After learning that the police officer who killed Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager, would face no punishment, Samori becomes upset and Coates decided to write him a letter. The first part of the book begins with Coates explaining that Americans believe that race is a natural phenomenon. Coates corrects this misconception and instead explains the process of assigning race to people has never been about genealogy or physiognomy, but about establishing hierarchy. Race resulted from racism, not in reverse order. Similarly, Coates writes that whiteness is also a modern invention, predicated on superiority over other minorities. Coates does not tell his son that everything will be okay, because Coates is not optimistic. Instead, he tells his son that the United States is his country, that this is his world, and that he must find a way to live in his black body in a world that criminalizes black people. Coates identifies the question that will guide his book as, How do I live free in this black body? This question becomes especially important when examining the beliefs that sustain the American dream, or as Coates simply calls it, the dream. Coates writes that the United States understands itself as God's handiwork, but that black bodies make it clear that America is the work of men. Coates spends considerable time focusing on the precarity of the black body. He details his childhood in Baltimore, where streets were transformed into a series of trick questions that needed to be correctly navigated. Answering these questions incorrectly could result in a beatdown, a shooting, or a pregnancy. Coates spent much of his youth concerned with how he would walk to school, the way he would walk, and who he would acknowledge. He was practicing the culture of the streets, which meant that he was concerned with securing his body against violence. School did not offer Coates a refuge. School itself was not a place of curiosity or learning, but an opportunity to discipline black bodies. He could not understand why they were learning French, which seemed far removed from his daily life. His elders framed school as a way to escape death or penal warehousing. Coates' education often featured teachers who would gather students into assemblies to discuss the civil rights movement, the font from which all their role models arose. 